We all desire to keep guns out of the hands of criminals, and there are many laws, federal, state, and local, that are supposed to accomplish that. The problem is that, by definition, criminals break the law. Let's talk about that when we come back. Practical Prepping Podcast. We're helping everyday people become prepared for whatever emergencies come our way. Where gear is good, but knowledge is better because the more you know, the less you have to carry. We're your hosts, Mark and Krista Lawley. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today's podcast is going to be a little bit different. It's probably going to turn into somewhat of a rant by me. Uh, I have been watching recently with the gun control issues, and I'm frustrated with seeing some type of shooting, it seems like, almost every day. Not a week goes by that we don't have some type of high-publicity shooting somewhere in the country. Because of that, I just want to come to you tonight and share some thoughts with you on the gun control situation. Now, the left wing of the Democratic Party has been playing the long game. Their intended goal is the confiscation of all firearms, and that's well documented in statements made by politicians. Joe Biden said that the Second Amendment is not absolute. Well, if the second isn't absolute... What about the first or the fourth or the fifth or the 14th? They said they weren't going to ban any rifles. But I remember Beto O'Rourke saying, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15. Now, there's several problems with that. One, it's unconstitutional. The Second Amendment recognizes we have the right to keep and bear arms. It doesn't give us the right it recognizes a pre-existing right. Now, here's another thing. There's roughly 340 to 350 million firearms in the U.S. That's 1.2 firearms per person, every man, woman, and child. That's a lot of guns. That's a lot of guns to try to take, and they won't take them all. Another is that criminals will not turn in their guns. See, they don't care about the law. Now, one thing that's interesting is they are for disarming the law-abiding. See, if if the law-abiding folks are disarmed, it makes the criminal's profession safer. They're less likely to be shot in gun-free zones, and they know that. One thing, and I alluded to it a moment ago, is that most guns in America would not get turned in. Now, let's go down to Australia for just a minute and go back to 1996 and 97. Australia put in a mandatory buyback and a ban on semi-automatic and pump-action rifles and shotguns. Now, 700,000 guns were turned in, but it was estimated that 260,000 were not turned in or registered. Now, there's one academic estimate that said that only 20% of privately owned weapons were turned in. Now, interestingly, since that time, 
1.6 million weapons, firearms, have been imported, and those have gone to 816,000 licensed owners. Now, there's 2.89 million registered guns in Australia. That's after their ban. But they are registered guns. And the law is that Australians that are caught with unregistered guns can be fined $200,000 and spend 14 years in jail. And that's after the ban. Now, let's look at American gun laws, and let's just see where we are. We have some unique gun laws. Very unique. In 1791, the Second Amendment was ratified. That was our first gun law. In 1934, in order to or attempt to curtail gangland violence, full automatic and short barrel rifles less than 16 inches with barrels less than 16 inches or short barrel shotguns less than 18 inches plus suppressors were to be registered and put under a $200 transfer tax. Now think about that for just a moment, a $200 transfer tax in 1934. That was a huge chunk of money at that point in time. And I remember not long before that, not that I actually remember it, I've read it, that a 1925 Model T Ford, brand new, cost $895. So this was not too long after that. So it was almost a fourth of a new car to be able to transfer a fully automatic firearm or short barrel rifle or short barrel shotgun. In 1938, there was a law that put in, and this was after the Robert F. Kennedy assassination, and it required a federal firearms license, and it prohibited certain people from being able to purchase a firearm. Then fast forward to 1968, just 30 years later, the Gun Control Act of 1968 added destructive devices such as grenades, mines, bombs, and I'm not really sure I have a big problem with those being curtailed either. But it also expanded the machine gun definition. It also banned imports with, quote-unquote, no sporting purpose. Now, this was the cheap Saturday night specials that really probably do not need to be in the hands of the public. It also imposed age restrictions to purchase. See, prior to that, there was no age restriction on purchasing a firearm, and they made it 18 years old for long guns and 21 years old for handguns. And it prohibited felons and mentally ill people from purchasing. Fast forward to 1986, the Firearm Owners Protection Act. Now, this was signed under President Reagan, and it was intended to have some protections. And one was it prohibited a national record of federal firearms license records. 
See, when you purchase a firearm, there is a form, and we always called it the yellow form. I think it's a 4731 or a 4371, but you fill that out, and it had a number of questions on there, and it had all your data, and those were not allowed to be kept past a certain length of time, and it also prohibited the transfer of fully automatic uh, weapons that were manufactured after May the 19th of 1986. Now, I like the part about prohibited the national recording of the FFL records. But what happened when they prohibited the transfer of any fully automatic weapon to a private citizen that was manufactured after May the 19th of 1986, it caused the market to skyrocket in prices. Prior to that, you could purchase a M16. I I remember that one in particular. You could purchase legally with a $200 transfer fee and the proper paperwork. You could purchase an M16 for approximately $2,2500. And that was actually a little bit earlier than 86. That was probably around 83 or 4 when I was looking at that. But after this, the prices have skyrocketed to such a degree that you can't find any fully automatic weapon for under probably $10,000 now. And some of them go on up thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. And I imagine there are more that are even more expensive than that. But that came about with the Firearm Owners Protection Act. And I think that the fully automatic thing was a compromise in order to get the prohibition on building any type of a database. 1993. Now, this was after Jim Brady had been shot on the day that Reagan was shot. And Jim Brady was, I think, press secretary And he sustained permanent head injury, brain damage from that. And this act was named in his honor, the Brady Handgun Violence Act. And it required background checks before the purchase of a weapon from licensed dealers. See, before that, you just filled out the form. And as long as you answered every question correctly, the dealer was allowed to sell that weapon to you. But now this puts in the background check, but it also established the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. And they entered data in that, or it is even today is supposed to be entered into that, on felony convictions, domestic violence convictions, anyone who is adjudicated mentally ill, or even someone who receives a dishonorable discharge. And once they are in that NICS system, as it's called for short, when the background check is run, they are then prohibited from purchasing a weapon. The year later, the Public Safety and Recreational Firearms Use Protection Act, now that's a mouthful, It prohibited the manufacture of 19 military-style weapons. Now, these were copycat weapons. 
These were weapons that were falsely called assault weapons. See, an assault weapon is actually a weapon that is select fire. And so none of these were select fire, but they were copycats. They looked like military weapons. And this included the AR-15, the AK-47, the Tech 9 the MAC-10, but there were 19 listed military-style weapons, and it also banned certain high-capacity magazines of greater than 10 rounds. That had a sunset of 10 years, so it was in effect from 1994 until 2004, and it was not reinstated. Now, let's look at the 1968 and the 1993. That prohibited felons and mentally ill from purchasing weapons. But how's that worked out? We still have felons that are getting weapons in their hands, and we'll talk about that in a minute. We've still got mentally ill people purchasing weapons legally. They're not supposed to be able to, but it's not being entered into the NICS system, and these are being able to purchase weapons. Now, the left-wing Democrats have just been waiting for the opportunity to confiscate all firearms, and if they say anything otherwise, they're lying. The House passed this week. Protecting Our Kids Act, and they say it's all for protecting our kids, but this doesn't do it. Now, it raises the age to purchase certain semi-automatic center fire rifles from 18 to 21, but there's no change for shotguns or mini rifles. Now, let's just talk about that AR-15 for a moment. There are much more powerful weapons available. In fact, I was in a discussion not long ago, actually earlier this week, about the high-powered AR-15. And I made the statement that the AR-15 was the exact same action as my father's deer rifle. So today, I put two cartridges in my pocket. I put a 30-06 hunting round and I put a 223 in my pocket. And I went online and I found some different photographs and I found a photograph of an AR-15, fairly simple, had no other attachments except a flashlight. And then I found a photograph of a Remington 742, which is what my dad had and I have now. It was not the actual weapon, but it was identical to it. And it had two magazines there in the photograph, a five and a 10 round magazine. And then I found another 742 photograph that had a 20 round magazine in it. So I went back to these folks today. And I said, I want, to, I want you to understand the truth. I, I want you to see what's really going on here. And I showed these folks, and it was four people, 
and I showed them the AR-15, and they agreed it was scary. It was ugly and scary. For AR-15s, it wasn't that ugly, but for a rifle, yeah, they're a little bit fugly. Well, I said, now let me show you my dad's hunting rifle. This is not the actual one, but it's identical to it. And actually, the the lady, the boss of the folks that I was talking with, she said, oh, yeah, I recognize that because her family hunted and she was well familiar with the hunting rifle. And then I showed them the photograph of the 742 with the 20 round magazine. And I talked about then showing them that the, um, oh, and by the way, the AR had a red dot scope on it. And I told them it was good out to what, 125, 150 yards. And the 742 had a three by nine on it. And that in capable hands, that'd be good for 600 to a thousand yards. And then I pulled the 30-06 cartridge out of my pocket, and I said, now this is what the hunting round, and that particular lady said, oh, yeah, I've seen those many, many times. I said, now this is actually a high-power rifle round. It was used in World War II. It was the cartridge used in the M1 Garand, the battle rifle of World War II. Fine round. It's put many a deer on the ground. And I said, you know, this is what goes into the 742. And then I pulled the 223 out. And if you're familiar with both, you know that that 223 is much smaller round. And I pointed out that this is what they're calling the high-powered AR-15 round. Or they're calling it a bullet a lot of times. But I said, it's actually a medium power. And I told them that I personally have killed a deer with an AR-15. It was the only deer, the only rifle that I actually had available to hunt on that particular occasion. So I took it and I actually took a headshot on a doe and was able to take a deer that day. This particular all for protecting our kids, protecting our kids act doesn't really do that. Now, it adds some new federal offenses for gun trafficking. I thought that was already illegal for selling large capacity magazines. And I think they've decided on 15 round this time because so many uh, handguns, the Glock that I'm issued by the county has a 17 round magazine. I used to have one that had a 19-round magazine, and so those were what came standard with that, but now they're talking 15 rounds. And it also establishes penalties for breaking some new requirements that they've put in there for regulating firearm storage on residential premises. You're going to have to lock your gun up at home. If you're caught breaking that requirement, there's a fine. And it doesn't say that if other people live in the house. So that could be a sticky wicket right there. Now, it also strengthens regulations on bump stocks, which I thought had already been made illegal, and ghost guns. 
And if you don't know what a ghost gun is, it is a gun that is made, um, you build it yourself, and it does not have a serial number. It does not get sent from a manufacturer. It does not get tracked through the Federal Firearms Licensing Center. And these are usually, most folks will purchase an 80% lower is what it's called. And you have to do a lot of the milling in that lower to complete it. Then you can put the parts kits in it, put the stock, put the barrel, things like that. So you have made your own gun. And under the law, that has not required a serial number ever. So they're talking about ghost guns. And another thing about ghost guns, I'm not aware of one that has ever been used in a crime. But I guess that's neither here nor there as far as they care. I want to ask this question. What of these laws would have prevented even one death in Uvalde, Texas? The age to buy the rifle, you said? Well, it could easily have been bought on the street. It could easily have been bought from someone else used, and there'd be absolutely no record of it, and there'd be no way that he he would have been denied. Now, if he didn't buy it on the street, he could have stolen it like the Sandy Hook shooter did in stealing the rifle from his mother. The politicians, and I've heard this recently, cite a statistic that more children die from gun violence than any other cause. And they define children as anyone under 18 years of age. But what they fail to tell you is that a huge percentage of these children are gang-related deaths on the streets of cities like Chicago, New York, Atlanta, Los Angeles. And these children have likely participated in the killings of others. And what they fail to tell you is that many of those killed are killed in drive-by shootings or they're innocent bystanders to gang-related shootouts. There was a three-year-old killed in Alabama not that long ago while she was laying in bed. She'd already been put to bed, but she was the victim of a drive-by shooting with these guys shooting into the house, and she was killed. And it was also the wrong house. It wasn't the house they thought it was. And what these folks fail to tell you as well is that most of those shooters are already prohibited from having firearms. Many have felony convictions, some are addicted to drugs, and others are mentally ill. But they failed to tell you that. Another thing they failed to tell you is that those guns are not bought legally from a dealer, but they're either bought on the street or they're stolen. Now, I don't know exactly what the numbers are right now, but not all that long ago, Stolen Glocks could go on the street for as little as $40 each. And if these guys feel like there's a chance they're about to get caught with it, they'll ditch it if at all possible. I've been chasing cars and seen them thrown out the window. 
They want to get rid of that car. They want to get rid of that firearm because there are additional penalties if they commit a crime with a firearm or even if they're a prohibited person and they have that firearm, there are some federal additional penalties that can go along with that. So they'll ditch it, but they've got 40, 50 bucks in it. And it's so cheap to get another one on the streets that they're absolutely no hesitation to throw it away. Something else they fail to tell you is that even with universal background checks, these people are not going to have background checks. They couldn't pass it anyway. And the only time most of them go into a legit gun store is either during a burglary or a smash and grab. They're not going to get background checks. Universal background checks are only going to affect legal, law-abiding citizens, not the criminals. It won't take one gun off the street. Something else that they fail to tell you is that, by far, most of the shooters in high-profile shootings, like school shootings, workplace shootings, or public places such as malls and hospitals, are mentally ill. I read a statistic the other day from a study of school shootings from 1999 until 2017. 36% of those shooters were suicidal before the shooting, and 57% of them were suicidal at the time of the shootings. How many times have we seen a shooter shoot up a school and then take his own life? They're suicidal. They want the publicity. They want to make a statement. Well, what we have is a mental health problem, not a gun problem. See, 300 million plus privately owned firearms did not shoot anyone today and weren't used in a crime. We're attacking the wrong end of the snake. We're attacking the tail when we should be attacking the head. But we must put an end to these school shootings. But it won't be by putting more restrictions on law-abiding citizens. First thing we've got to do is we've got to secure our schools. And we don't want our schools to feel like prisons, but we do need to make them harder to get into the school than it is to get out of a prison. We also need to put armed SROs in every single school. There does not need to be a school in America that does not have an armed SRO in it. Now, they talk about red flag laws. Those laws have been problematic the way they've been enforced. I remember that up in the Northeast somewhere a couple of years ago, one of the red flag laws, lady went down and signed red flag law on her uncle. They didn't tell him anything about it. SWAT team just shows up before daylight, and right at daylight, they knock on the door and they're going to enter the house and they're going to take his guns. Well, like so many old guys, you get a knock on the door, you 
take a firearm with you to answer the door. And he did that. And they burst into the door. He raised the firearm. He didn't realize it was a SWAT team. He was just waking up and someone's coming in his house and they killed him. And it turned out, I remember her statement was, well, it was a family thing. He was not a danger to have firearms. And that's what we've dealt with with some of the flat of the red flag laws. They've been problematic. But whatever system is developed must be constitutional and include due process. Here's where I start getting a little bit angry. And that is that every school shooter that I have studied in that study from 1999 to 2017 had red flags and had red flags, some of them for years, even as young as third or fourth grade. Their behavior was such that their teachers, their counselors were saying things like, this one's really going to be a problem one day. And that was said about some of these school shooters. Some of them had exhibited behavior that indicated violent behavior. I remember one had a sack of dead cats posted on his social media page. Some of these shooters gave indicators of what they would do. Some of them actually told others ahead of time. And one, not too long ago, live-streamed his racially motivated shooting. Those red flags are there. But, you know, our school systems are not equipped to handle most of these kids. Our counselors are extremely overworked with heavy caseloads, and they can't deal with these kids on a level that they would like to. And actually, the problem is beyond their ability to help. But now, these problem students wind up getting kicked on down the road to someone else. If they leave a school, school says, glad that's over, and that's the end of it. And if they change schools, their disciplinary record is sent, but it doesn't always tell the whole story. There has to be a constitutional way to track these kids' behavior and keep them on someone's radar until at some point a legal intervention can be made. And at some point, it must be made. If not, we'll be reading about them in the news. We'll be reading about how many they killed. Folks, I don't know the answer. If I did, I'd write the book and get paid big bucks to speak at conferences. But what I do know is like so many of you, I'm frustrated, I'm saddened, and I'm even disgusted. I'm disgusted that it's happening. I'm disgusted that there are those who will take advantage of these tragedies, the death of small children, to advance a political agenda. I'm saddened for what these families are going through. It has to be hard to lose a child to begin with. 
but to lose a child in such a senseless way. I'm saddened by that. And I'm frustrated that we attack the wrong end of the snake. We're putting the emphasis, or Congress is putting the emphasis on the gun. It's not a gun problem. It's a people problem. It's a mental health problem. And they're not all mentally ill. Some are just evil. And that is a heart problem. I pray for these families. I pray for the prevention of incidents like that. And I encourage you to do the same with me. Because it's only by the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ that we'll see an end to this. I appreciate you letting me rant tonight. As Krista says, stuff happens. Stay prepared. And we'll see you next time.